Hello, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks so much for listening to our podcast. And we hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. And if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. Um, Pastor Andy is away on uh, some well-deserved R&R this week, and um, of course he's been preaching a series called Resisting Rage, and we're kind of in the middle of that series. There's been two two sermons, uh, messages preached on that, and one more to go. And Pastor Andy had arranged for a guest speaker to uh, come in and present us that, but we discovered that he had some anger management issues, so we decided that would not be a good choice for our guest speaker. So in the meantime, I've been asked to step in and preach a sermon on a completely different topic. Pastor Andy will return to the, the series on resisting rage next week, but for now, we're going to take a little bit different tack and a little bit different approach. What I'd like to talk about today is uh, our eating habits and how those affect our relationship to Jesus and our Christian faith and our discipleship. And I want to introduce that topic by telling a story. And some of you have heard this story before, so bear with me if you have. Um, this past um, May, we went on vacation, kind of a family vacation, my wife and I, and our son, Colin, and his wife, Teresa. And we went to Hawaii. And one of Colin's um, pastimes, I guess, or ha um, I don't even call it, his hobbies or whatever, is uh, endurance racing, bicycling, running. Um, he's done some Ironman triathlons and some marathons. He had this idea, <clears throat> he read about somewhere, that he wanted to bicycle from Hilo, Hawaii, on the Big Island, which is at sea level, to the top of Mauna Kea, which is the tallest volcano on the Big Island. Um, that's 13,800 feet above sea level. So he wanted to bike that from sea level all the way up to the top of Mauna Kea, 42 miles, 13,800 feet elevation gain. Um, so he packed his bike. He found a way to ship his bike from the mainland over to Hawaii, unpacked it, got it all ready to go. We had to get up early in the morning because our place where we were staying at was on the opposite side of the island from Hilo. So we had to get up really early, drive across the island, get to Hilo, and get him set up, and he started off on his bike trip. Before he went, he had those um, cyclist jerseys that have all the pockets, you know, in the back and the front and the sides and zippers and all that kind of stuff. So he had packed it full of uh, energy bars and the little energy gels that you can put in a little packet and squeeze, you know, to get you amped up with energy. Three different water bottles, and of course, we were going to supposed to be um, following him as a, in a support vehicle. So he took off about nine o'clock in the morning uh, one day, and um, because we knew he had a kind of a gradual um, rise in elevation until he got to the foot of the volcano my wife and I and Teresa, we decided we would do some sightseeing. So we went and visited a botanical garden, took our time, went and grabbed lunch at McDonald's, and then we decided we'd try to catch up to him and see where he was. So by the time we started up the, up the actual volcano, uh, he had, we haven't seen him yet, so we thought he was still ahead of us. Um, so at about at 9,200 feet level, there's a visitor center. 
and the authorities ask you to stop. If you're going to go all the way to the top, you need to stop there, kind of get acclimated to the altitude, get rested, and those kind of things. So our plan was to meet Colin at that visitor center where he could do that. We were about maybe a mile below that when we passed Colin. He was pumping away on his bicycle. So we pull, you know, pulled over and kind of cruised beside him and said, how you doing? You doing okay? Yeah, I'm doing okay. We'll meet you up at the visitor center. So we went on ahead, got out, used the restrooms, uh, finished eating our lunch, and amazingly, in that very barren, kind of isolated area, um, we had cell phone service and text service. Teresa got a text from Colin saying, I need food. So we said, yeah, we have some food for you here. We'll, we'll, be, we'll meet you here up here. And he said, no, I need food now. So we had to get back in the car, drive back down the mile or less down to where he was, and had to give him what food we had because we hadn't planned on much. So. Uh, there was like a half-eaten McDonald's hamburger, so he got half a patty, the bread, and all the fixings, and a few cold fries. Um, but amazingly, um, that did the trick. Um, so we went back on up to the visitor center, then he pedaled in a little bit later, and he rested up before he started making the attempt to get to the rest, the top of the, of the mountain there. Um, but it was amazing, he, he remarked how interesting it was that how quickly his um, energy level just dropped because we had passed him and he said he was doing fine. But then like within 10 minutes, he had hit a wall of some sort and his energy level completely faded and he needed something quick. And just that, those few bites of food had an immediate effect on him as well and he made it the rest of the way up to the visitor center. So he remarked how interesting it was that when, you're, when your reserves, your energy reserves are at such a low level, you're kind of on the edge at, at the time, how quickly it can deteriorate into a real problem and how quickly he recovered after that. Because when you're, when you're riding, you know, running on empty, just a little bit can tip the balance either way. And I got to thinking and we kind of remarked on how that maybe has some kind of a spiritual analogy for us. Um, when we have challenges to our faith, uh, or sometimes we might be la surprised at our lack of resources to meet the need. I don't know if that's happened to you or someone you know, um, but I can kind of start the list. I mean, when something happens to you physically, that can affect your whole life, including your spiritual life. Um, if you have a health issue, whether it's a sudden onset kind of a thing or maybe a long-term chronic thing that just continually draws your energy down. Um, times of unanswered prayer, I know, have stressed my life and my, I guess, commitment level uh, to Jesus because you begin to question things about him and you and your faith. But there's other things probably, I don't know, you all can probably add to the whole list, um, time pressures or stresses at work. All of those things have a cumulative effect that can drain your spiritual energy reserves. Um, so today I want us to talk a little bit about that kind of issue and what God has provided for us as a remedy. So our text this morning comes from uh, John chapter 6, and it's a pretty well-known story uh, about the, when Jesus feeds 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves of bread. So we're going to read that, and um, before we do, I want to kind of give us a little intro um, to what's been going on. Jesus has been healing people, and some of the Jewish leadership, the authorities, um, are questioning his credentials. They're questioning who he is, whether his ministry is really authentic or not. 
And so what happens here when the feeding of the 5,000 people, or actually 5,000 men, they only counted the men, but we can assume the crowd was even larger when you include women and children. Um, So this is where our passage uh, enters. Now, it's traditional in some traditions uh, that we stand when we read the gospel passage, so I'm going to invite you to stand up as we read this first gospel passage. This comes from John chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming to him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? Now he asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than a half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each person to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over. Let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Now again, I've... This is a fairly well-known story in the Gospels, and uh, lots of different people have read it and interpreted it different ways. And this week when our life group was meeting, I asked for some help because I wasn't quite sure how to get into the, the sermon here and, and approach the passage. So I asked them, what have you heard or listened to or learned about this passage, this story? What's been your takeaway from things that you've been taught about Jesus feeding the 5,000 people? So we had some good uh, discussion, several people responded, and we came up with a a few different approaches or ways to read this passage. Um, One is to focus on the boy, the boy who had the food, his willingness to share, and we're assuming that he was willing. I don't think that Andrew walked over to him and said, here kid, give give me your food. They must have asked him. And so the idea of the boy being willing to share and the spirit in which he did that could be a a takeaway from this story. Another way of viewing it is like from the perspective of the disciples, Philip and Andrew and the others. Um, They didn't know exactly what to do, but they did find this boy who had some food, and so they brought the boy and his lunch to Jesus. So in times when we don't really know what to do uh, or where to turn or what to do, um, if we offer to God what we do have, then we might be surprised what God can do with it. Um, Another way of looking at it is to kind of focus on how Jesus multiplied the loaves and the fish. Um, 
make it, if we need to examine it as if it were in a, natural, a natural event that can somehow be explained. Um, if we could uh, figure out the mechanics or the physics of the miracles, what happens to the molecular structure of the bread to make it expand and feed all those people? Um, or you can explain it through social science, the social dynamics. Once, once everybody saw what the boy had done, um, they took um, inspiration from his example and they began to share what they had. They hadn't really, they'd kind of been hiding their picnic from the disciples, I guess, or something. But the boy's example inspired them and so everybody pitched in and that, therefore that was enough to feed everyone. Um, that's another possible way of trying to get at this story. A couple people mentioned that, well, I really hadn't thought about it. I just kind of had learned this story since I was a kid and kind of accepted it and did the coloring pages in Sunday school where Jesus was feeding all the people and stuff and never really questioned or examined it much. So there's probably other ways of approaching it, but I think today I'm going to kind of leapfrog off of that last way of reading it. Um, I'm going to start by accepting it as a straightforward historical event. And then we're going to look at how do we interpret it? What's the meaning of this particular event? And then we're going to follow up, thirdly, by figuring out what the proper response is to this story, this interpretation. So let's look at, look at the event itself. Um, this is the only miracle in the four Gospels that's described by all four Gospel readers. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four have this miracle story in them, and it's the only one that they all share and repeat. Every version has their own emphasis, and John is particularly um, unique, I guess, his perspective on this story. Um, for example, in John, there's no mention of Jesus' feelings of compassion for the crowd. Matthew and Mark do say that Jesus had compassion on these people that were coming to him, hungry, like uh, sheep without a shepherd, but John doesn't mention Jesus' feelings about that. Um, John is also the only gospel story of this particular story to mention the boy and his loaves, of, loaves and fish. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention the boy. Just all of a sudden there's, there's food there that the disciples find. Um, and in John, there's a particular um, emphasis on Jesus, on his initiative. He's the one in John that notices the crowd and brings up the question, how are we going to feed all these people? In the, other past, in the other Gospels, it's the disciples who raise that question. But here, Jesus is the one that notices. Um, Jesus, of course, asked Philip, what are we going to do, Philip? As if he were testing him, but he already knew what he was going to do. So it kind of implies a certain divine foreknowledge on Jesus' part. Um, and it also points to Jesus' central role because Jesus is the one who distributes the bread directly to the people. In the other Gospels, Jesus tells the disciples to do that. So here Jesus has a central role. And in John, what we might say theologically is it's a very Christologically focused story. It's focusing very much on Jesus himself and his role and his actions. Now, the crowd, as a result, um, signifies that they kind of notice something special about this. And they say that Jesus is the prophet who is to come. So it's a sign, and again, John uses the word sign instead of the word miracle to talk about all of Jesus' miraculous events and stories and actions. So our event is basically a feeding um, with bread and fish is a sign, a sign that points beyond the physical actions and the objects to some greater reality 
that focuses on Jesus as a very unique person. So that's our event. Now we need to look at the interpretation. Um, And thankfully, John provides us with an interpretation. Um, The context is, as soon as Jesus had finished feeding the 5,000 and the disciples had gathered up all the leftovers, um, Jesus sends his disciples to the other side of the lake, and then eventually he joins them. Um, In between, in all the three, four gospels, no, three of the four gospels, there's a story of Jesus walking on the water, but that's just a diversion, so we won't gonna, we're not going to focus on that right now. That's a, a, a sermon in its own, so we're going to skip that. When they get all on the other side of the lake, the crowd somehow find out where Jesus is, and they follow him. And they come to him, wanting him to teach them and tell them more. And they're seeking more of the kinds of signs that he had done with the feeding of the 5,000 people with the fish and the bread. They had not recognized the fact that the bread was a sign of his identity, They were more focused on what can Jesus do for me rather than who is Jesus. So our second passage here, we won't stand or respond to this one, but I'm going to read another section out of chapter 6, verses 30 to 35. So the people asked Jesus, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So we had said that the crowd had noticed that Jesus was the prophet who is to come. Um, And what prophet exactly are we talking about? Well, one possibility is um, one of the Old Testament prophets prophets by the name of Elisha performed a very similar miracle. This story comes from 2 Kings chapter 4. A man came from the town of Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God, that is Elisha the prophet, 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord." parallels are pretty striking there, right? I mean, it's very similar to what Jesus did and said. But there's another prophet, an even more important prophet to the Jewish people, and that's Moses, Moses himself, the leader of the people from bondage in Egypt uh, into the wilderness and through all those years and into the promised land or to the promised land. Now, there are some other clues that we had already kind of skipped over in the first part when when the feeding of the 5,000 is described. First of all, John mentions, and again, John is the only gospel writer to do this. He says the Passover was near, which for Jews is a sign of the beginning of the Exodus, right? So again, it's focusing back on that whole part of the story of the people of Israel, the time when they escaped from Egyptian bondage to become a free people. And then there's the reference to Moses giving the Israelites manna in the desert, which was a bread-like substance that helped them survive while they were wandering around for 40 years in the, in the wilderness. 
So the, John is setting this whole thing up as a, an example, Jesus as an example of a second Moses, only much greater than Moses. And he's leading a second kind of exodus um, from slavery to freedom. Now that's a big deal because if we think about it, for the Jewish people, um, the exodus is like the foundational event of their national life. It's kind of maybe analogous to what we think of um, when we think of our American Revolution. Um, the exodus is kind of like parallel to that. Moses would be kind of like our George Washington, who was the father of his country. Um, and when, he goes to Pharaoh, when Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go, that could be like our Declaration of Independence, right? When we're ex expressing our, our freedom from uh, Great Britain. Um, the Exodus itself, where they travel, escape from Egypt, go through the parting of the Red Sea and wander around in the wilderness, that could be analogous to the actual Revolutionary War, the struggle to um, become free and identify themselves as a separate people. And then when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and receives the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law from God, comes back down and presents it to the people, that could be kind of like our Constitution, setting forth our own identity, our way of living together, the laws that we're going to agree to abide by and live together with. So think about how important that is to us in American history. That's kind of like what the Exodus event is to the Jewish people. But then Jesus points out correctly that it's not Moses that gave you the manna in the wilderness. It's God himself. The manna comes from God, God the Father. And manna from heaven is basically a representation or a sign of God's care for his people while they're wandering around lost, trying to find their way. Life-sustaining, life-giving bread or manna comes from God. And so then people, the people that spoke to Jesus said, well, sir, give us this always, this kind of bread we always want. They seemed to have caught on to the metaphor that Jesus was trying to teach them. And then they expressed their desire for these gifts from God. And who wouldn't, right? Don't we all turn to God in times of stress or trouble or lack or need or want? Um, when we're feeling down or we get slammed by life's events, we turn to God and we say, God, we need help. We need something from you. So Jesus is saying that's, that's what bre this bread represents. And then he makes a leap, a metaphorical leap from this is a metaphor for God's life-giving, life-sustaining bread to making it personal. It, the bread is actually himself. He himself in person is representative of the living, breathing presence of God. Now, <clears throat> you all know what cognitive, cognitive dissonance is. I think um, when we learn something new that kind of corrects or contradicts what we previously thought or believed, um, I've experienced that numbers of times, especially for like when I think about my childhood heroes, uh, like Davy Crockett and Charles Lindbergh and Eddie Rickenbacker were all my childhood heroes. But when I grew up and read more biography, found out some of them were kind of rascals and some of them were downright un-American or maybe not really good people. Um, so yeah, I had to readjust my orientation about who I thought was you know, admirable in my sight. Well, this kind of has the same effect on the Jews that Jesus was talking to. They had cognitive dissonance. To think of a human, especially this Jesus that they can see right in front of them, is somehow a divine person, um, an expression of God's presence, God himself. But when we think back to the very beginnings of John's gospel, John is pretty consistent with saying 
that this is, this is who Jesus is. He opens the gospel by saying, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. A few verses later, he says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. And then at the very end, he bookends it at the very end of his gospel. He says that these stories about Jesus are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you can have life in his name. So the interpretation part of this event is, I guess our takeaway would be that what matters is not so much what Jesus can do for us, but who Jesus is. It focuses on the person, and the prophet that Jesus is, is greater than Moses, and he's leading a new kind of exodus into freedom. Uh, In fact, Jesus was not just a provider of bread, he is the bread, the true life-giving, life-sustaining bread that God sends. So how does Jesus' crowd, the people he's talking to, how do they respond? And, And maybe more important, how are we to respond? Our response, um, again, I've got to fill in a, another, read another passage out of John chapter 6, but again, the context is important. When Jesus hears, or when the crowd hears Jesus make this claim, they kind of grumble about, you know, who is this guy? Uh, he said that I, I'm the bread that came down from heaven, but we know that Jesus is the son of Joseph. We know his mother and his father. How can he say that I came down from heaven? It's interestingly, that's another kind of parallel to the Exodus. Remember in the, in the wilderness, the people started grumbling against Moses and against God. Here the people are grumbling against Jesus. Um, but Jesus doubles down on his claim, and he insists that I am the living bread that came down from heaven. And then he goes one step further. He says, whoever eats of this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now, that sounds a little bit repugnant, I think, not only to us, but even to the Jews of Jesus' day. He's trying to say that you are to ingest or consume or internalize, take in and make a part of your life, your very being, me. I am living bread. Uh, And then the result is that you will have eternal life, both now as a quality of life and eternal life as far as living forever. Um, an astounding claim for anybody to make. Um, And if he were living today, we might want to say it sounds like one of those infomercials where they make outlandish claims about some kind of crazy product, but it's a wonderful thing. Um, But, wait, there's more. Jesus then triples down on his claim. And this comes from from John chapter 6, verses 53 to 58. Let me read that. Jesus then says to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. So again, Jesus is now adding, not only am I the bread, you are supposed to eat 
my flesh, which is the bread, and drink my blood. Now, eating flesh is one thing, but drinking blood, that's not what Moses said. In fact, Moses said the opposite. He said that the Jews were not to consume blood. It says right there in Leviticus, this is a lasting ordinance for generations to come wherever you live. You must not eat any fat or any blood. Any Israelite or any foreigner residing among you who hunts any animal or bird that may be eaten must drain out the blood and cover it with earth because the life of every creature is its blood. That's why I've said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is its blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. Now, if you know anything about kosher cooking, you know that there are all sorts of rules and regulations for folks, for kosher butchers on how they prepare the meat and, and present it and cook it. Um, and it has to follow all these Jewish laws, these dietary laws. It was the same back in Jesus' day. And so for them, for the Jews of that day, that, this was scandalous, right? A new, some sort of new regulation that Jesus is saying that overrides what Moses has said. And even for us today, eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood sounds weird, if not downright immoral. Um, one of the accusations against the early Christians was that they were cannibals because they talked about eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. And so a lot of the early Christian uh, writers had to explain what they meant by that um, so that the secular authorities wouldn't come down on them because cannibalism was illegal, even back in Roman times. Um, but think about it, <clears throat> we use eating metaphors all the time in our language, in English. Um, if someone's upset with me, I hope they don't bite my head off, right? Um, or a grandma comes up to her grandchild and says, oh, I could just eat you up. You know, those, that kind of language. Can you think of other ones? Um, maybe you swallowed that hook, line, and sinker kind of a thing. Um, Maybe someone can be described as a voracious reader who just devours everything they can get a hold of. What other ideas? What, have you, what kind of eating metaphors have you heard of being used in English language? Group participation time. Bite off more than you can chew. Yeah, good one. Say again? I've just said a mouthful. Okay, yeah. Um, sometimes if it's uh, something that's, that we don't like, we say, well, I can't stomach that, right? Um, or if I've made a mistake, sometimes I have to eat my own words. So you think about it, we use these eating metaphors all the time. So think about it in those kinds of terms, and maybe this idea of eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood may not be quite so repugnant or um, off-putting for us. Um, and then we come to a kind of a weird wonderful irony here. The story had started with um, Jesus feeding people physical bread, bread that sustains life, right? Uh, but then he goes on, then he says that this bread points to me as the true bread of life. It's a spiritual reality that lies behind physical bread. Um, but then he circles around completely and points us to this common bread that becomes now a means of us experiencing the real spiritual presence of Jesus in our lives. So we've come full circle from the physical to the spiritual to the physical again. It's all kind of part of the same cycle. So our response is, we're supposed to eat this bread, that is Jesus' body and blood. 
To be truly united with Christ, it's necessary to eat his flesh and drink his blood. That is, to internalize it or integrate Christ into all of our lives. The eating and drinking of Christ's flesh and his blood result in this mutual abiding um, that John talks about a lot, the abiding of the believer and Jesus Christ, some kind of a personal relationship of faith. Um, Sometimes it's called the mystical union of the believer and Jesus Christ, which happens when we receive communion. Now, at the end of this story, at the very beginning of the next chapter, the disciples say, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? No kidding, right? Um, There are symbols, and then there are symbols. And we're going to talk about that. Sometimes we might kind of identify ourselves by our preferences. We might, um, our coffee cups have the Starbucks logo on them, right? Um, Or maybe you prefer to have, uh, drive a Ford. So you have the blue Ford oval, which is like a trademark. It's a logo. Um, Or you you might have, I don't know, your favorite sports team, you might identify by their logo, right? Um, and that kind of indicates or tells to the world what we identify with, our preferences, our likes, um, our hobbies, perhaps. But then there's other kinds of symbols. Symbols like things that reflect a deeper commitment um, and strong feelings. Um, for example, a swastika. What kind of feelings does that bring up in us? or the American flag, for which people are willing to give their lives. Um, A rainbow can have multiple symbolic meanings for us. We could also point to our wedding rings that have deep commitment-level kinds of symbols, right? So there's symbols, and then there's symbols. And for us, as Christians, the elements of communion, the bread and the wine or the juice, um, are like the ultimate symbols. now, when we talk about symbols, and we all are basically asking, how is Christ present in these symbols, these symbols of bread and wine, or bread and juice? Um, and we need to kind of, I guess, think of it as kind of on a continuum. So maybe on one side here, we might say, um, Jesus is present literally and physically. When there are certain words said in the liturgy of communion, um, this bread and this juice actually become Jesus' real-life body and blood. Um, There's a tradition, like the Roman Catholic tradition, believes in that kind of a presence of Jesus in the elements. And so that that explains why you don't dare spill or waste or discard the elements, even even if they're left over after serving communion. Um, On the other side would be looking at um, communion as basically a a memorial, something that we remember. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. So when we receive communion, we're remembering what Jesus has done for us by dying on the cross and being raised to new life. And then there's a third, maybe kind of more more centralized perspective that says, well, Jesus is present in a very real, um, actual way. We can't quite explain it. It, um, The bread and the juice don't change, their essence doesn't change into flesh and blood. They remain bread and juice, but yet Jesus is present in them, and when we receive communion, we are receiving Christ in a very real kind of way. And this kind of sacramental thinking is part and parcel of John's whole gospel. The Word became flesh and lived among us, 
And the same principle applies to our relationship with Jesus. We can and we should celebrate and maybe think about, contemplate on what Jesus has done for us and who Jesus is when we receive communion. Um, that's our spiritual connection with God through Jesus. Um, but it also requires us to actually physically receive and partake of the elements. We eat the bread and we drink the juice. And for Christians, communion wine or juice, or sometimes called the chalice, the cup that it's in, or in our case, the little plastic cuppy thingy here, um, that really is representative and expresses and brings to us the presence of Jesus. And the bread, the little wafer, um, or sometimes called the host, um, actually is for us a way for us to receive Jesus' presence in our lives. Um, Roman Catholic um, priest Fulton Sheen, who was very popular back in the 1950s and 60s, said, the greatest love story of all time is contained in a tiny white host. And this is what we are experiencing when we receive communion. We're experiencing God's gift of love in Jesus Christ. Now, there's kind of three time horizons for communion. Um, when we receive communion, we're experiencing and this is, might be good for science fiction uh, aficionados, um, we are spanning all, all elements of time. From the past, we are remembering what Jesus did, what Jesus said and did in his ministry, what Jesus said and did when he died on the cross and was raised to new life. Um, Augustine, St. Augustine, one of the early Christian writers, said that we, rec rec that we are to recognize in the bread what hung on the cross, and in the chalice what flowed from his side. We are remembering the great gift of Jesus Christ when we receive communion. But it also affects us in the present time as well. We're not just thinking about an event that happened in the past. We are experiencing in the present something real and true when we receive communion. Another ancient um, Christian writer, <clears throat> Chrysostom, he said, think about people who say, I just wish I could see Jesus. If, if I was only alive when he was alive, I, could have wished, I would wish to see him to see his figure, his clothes, his shoes. To those people, Chrysostom says, wait, right here, you see him, you touch him, you eat him, and while you long to see his clothes, he gives you himself, not only to look at, but to touch, to eat, and to receive within you. And another ancient writer said that it's kind of analogous to maybe melting two candles together. When you do that, you get one piece of wax, and so he says, I think the, uh, the, one, the person who receives the flesh and blood of Jesus is fused to together with him. The soul finds that he is in Christ and Christ is in him or her. And that's where we can experience Christ. When we run into the challenges of life, when life slams us and hits us hard, when we lack strength or energy to go on, when our commitment or our motivation starts to lag or fail, we know that Jesus' life-sustaining presence can be found in the sacrament of communion. It's always available to us. Jesus is always there. Um, there's another writer, and maybe you might be able to guess if you listen carefully to the language here, who wrote this, um, more well-known to us than some of those ancient Christian writers. In the blessed sacrament, you will find romance, glory, honor, fidelity, and the true way of all your loves on earth. That was J.R.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings author. Sounds like the kinds of stories that he writes, doesn't it? There is also a future orientation. 
um, Jesus talked about the fact that the people who received Jesus by eating his flesh and drinking his blood will live forever. They'll have eternal life, which takes us into the future. And we find out at the end of John's gospel, after Jesus has been raised from the dead, one of his experiences that his disciples have when they meet him is after they've gone back to their fishing life, they've been fishing all night, haven't caught a thing, they come back into shore and they see a man standing on the beach. And he says, you might have better luck if you throw the nets over on the other side. So they do that and then they bring up this huge haul of fish in their nets, so big that they can't even bring it in. It's too much for them to handle. And they realize that's Jesus on the shore. It was Jesus that told them to do that. And when they get to the shore, they find that he's cooking them breakfast already. And what is the breakfast? Fish and bread. Same kinds of things that he fed the 5,000 people with. So we see that this little breakfast on this lake shore is really a foretaste of the great wedding banquet that is to come when Jesus returns and all the saints are brought together. The wedding banquet of the, of the lamb is going to be the time when we all gather around the table. And this little breakfast on the shore and eating and drinking uh, communion is basically a foretaste of the future that lies ahead for all of us who are in him and follow Jesus. St. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again. So again, every time we receive this communion, we're reminding ourselves and becoming part of that great future that lies ahead for all of us as Jesus' followers. Now, one of our theological forefathers, the person who kind of founded Methodism and influences our theology, was John Wesley. He was an Anglican priest. And he saw that the sacraments of baptism and communion are what he called means of grace. God's grace comes to us through these physical actions of baptizing people in water and receiving bread and juice or bread and wine in communion. Now, God's grace is not limited to that. God's grace comes to us in all sorts of ways and all sorts of times through different people and experiences. But these two sacraments, baptism and communion, are the two established ways that God has given us and instructed us to follow and observe as ways where we are guaranteed that we will meet Jesus there. Other times may come and go and we may be kind of hit or miss with these other ways of experiencing God. Um, And so that's why John Wesley uh, encouraged frequent communion. And he said, there's nothing so great as the Eucharist, which is another word for communion. If God has something more precious, he would have given it to us. And so here we are today, echoing the plea of those who pled with Jesus on that hillside so long ago, Lord, give us this bread always. So that's what we're going to do today. I want to invite you to join me in preparing to receive communion. If you haven't already, there's some communion cups on the little stand out in the little foyer there. It has the juice in a cup and there's a little wafer on top. So if you want to get access to that right now, I invite you to grab some of those. And those of you who might be watching online, this would be a good time to find some elements that for you represent uh, bread and the wine or the flesh and the blood of Jesus. So we believe that anyone who is seeking God is eligible to receive communion. You don't have to be a member of this church or a member of this congregation. Anybody who is seeking God is welcome to receive communion. And as we work our way through the liturgy, there's going to be a few places for you to respond to some prompts that I'll give you, and you can see those on the screen. So we'll respond together when we get to those, those points. 
And then at the, at the point where there's a queue, we'll all receive the elements together. We'll, drink the ju- we'll eat the bread first, and then we'll drink the juice together. Okay? So let us, let us uh, begin. The peace of the Lord be with you. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, in your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had fallen into sin and became subject to evil and death, you, in your mercy, sent Jesus Christ to share our human nature, to live and die as one of us, to reconcile us to you, the God and Father of all. He stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself in obedience to your will to redeem the whole world. On the night that he was handed over to suffering and death, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks to you, he broke it and gave it to his disciples. And he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After supper, he took the cup of wine, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and he said, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. So therefore, let us proclaim together the mystery of faith. Christ has died, and Christ will come again. So now, Lord, we celebrate Christ's actions for our redemption with praise and with thanksgiving. We recall his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and we offer to you these gifts of bread and juice. Sanctify them by your Holy Spirit that they would become for us the body and the blood of Christ. And sanctify us also that we may faithfully receive your grace and serve you in unity and peace. And at the last day, bring us with all your saints into the joy of your eternal kingdom. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Amen. John Wesley wrote a poem. Author of life divine, who hast a table spread, furnished with mystic wine and everlasting bread, preserve the life thyself hast given, and feed and train us up for heaven. Let us eat and drink these in remembrance that Christ died for us, and be thankful. Let's receive and partake together. <laughs> 